Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. So William Tyndale had been in prison for about 18 months at this point. He was escorted by armed guards into the center of town. They marched him up some stairs and walking across some, some bales of straw and hay. And they tied him, hands behind his back, to a post. And they put a chain around his neck. He was strangled to death. He died. And then they lit the bales of straw on fire. Uh, he had been a priest. He left behind no family, no wife, no kids. His life's work had been translating the Bible into English. And for that, he was executed. And the story of William Tyndale raises some questions. You know, it raises questions like, was, was it worth it? Like, was it worth a man's life to take the Bible from the original languages and put it into English? And when I think about questions like that, it seems to me that our answers really depend on how important we think the Bible is, or like how necessary we think the Bible really is. Many people think we can actually get by just fine without the words of Scripture, But like, what if the Bible that you own, some of you came in with a Bible this morning, what if the Bible that you own, the Bible in your hand or the Bible on the shelves in your house, what if that only got there because someone else gave their life for it? Like, what if you knew that in order for you to be able to hold a Bible in your hand, someone had to die? What what difference would that make? The reason that I ask is because if you own an English Bible, you have William Tyndale to thank for it. And literally, it costs him his life. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, we're in a series called Biblical. And each week, we've been hearing the stories of saints whose relationship with the Bible, whose engagement with the Bible was costly for them. And just going back, we began by talking about the story of Athanasius of Alexandria. And we saw... The church has always depended on Scripture to speak clearly and authoritatively and without mistakes about what it speaks about. And if we couldn't rely on Scripture to speak clearly and authoritatively and without error, if we couldn't expect that, we don't have a Bible. Like, we don't know what the truth is. So that was the story of Athanasius. Then last week when we were together, we looked at the story of Olga of Kiev, and we saw what her story was like before Jesus— where she was just like overcome with violence and revenge and anger and and just murderous rage, and how in Christ she became this humble, holy saint. And we saw that we were like, how does that happen? How does that change come? And we saw that it's because of the power of the word, that when God gets a hold of somebody's life and he drives the word into their hearts, he can transform them because his word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We talked about the power of the word. So that was Olga of Kiev. Well, this morning we're talking about William Tyndale. We're back in Western Europe, or we're in Western Europe. We're talking about William Tyndale, and what we're asking this morning is, what is it worth for us to have a Bible to read? What is it worth for us to be able to read the Bible? Now, just a few things we need to understand by way of context. First of all, maybe a word about technology. The first thing I want to put on your radar is, is that there's a very recent invention that changes everything just before William Tyndale. It's the printing press. 
Within about 100 years of William Tyndale, the invention of the printing press changes the world in a similar way to how the world changed at the arrival of the internet. Okay? It changes everything because the printing press lets you make hundreds of copies of a page in one day, and it's cheap. Like before the printing press, you've got schools of scribes and you hire them. If you want to own a Bible, you, a rich person can hire the scribes and wait a year and spend about a couple of years of their, their income to have a Bible. But because of the printing press, now you can have a Bible in about a week's time and it costs you closer to two weeks wages if you're sort of a middle class uh, worker. So this was a massively important development. That was the printing press. Also helpful for today's story is a word about the Reformation, the, the Protestant Reformation. In, in 1517, a German Roman Catholic priest named Martin Luther, he's got a list of about 95 objections to what he sees going on in the Roman Catholic faith. And he takes that list of objections and he nails that list to the door in the central uh, church in his town in Wittenberg, Germany. So what Luther believed is that the Catholic Church had lost its way. It had uh, kind of obscured the gospel with all kinds of traditions and superstition that got in the way. It still, there was, the kernel of the gospel was still there, but there was all kinds of ways in which the gospel had become obscured. And what they were trying to express to people, what they were trying to clarify, is that we're not saved by the works that we do, the good works that we do that impress God, plus faith. The, the gospel, the good news that they were trying to clarify is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Okay? And, and they also wanted to, to make the world know that in order to know God, in order to understand the good news of Jesus, we actually don't need popes and bishops and cardinals and everybody telling us what the truth is or, or changing the truth or creating new ideas for us because everything that we need is in the Scripture. We go to, we go to Scripture alone. And so thank, thanks to the printing press and thanks to the Reformers, the, these ideas are spreading all over Europe. That's the moment we find ourselves in William Tyndale's time. These ideas are spreading all across Europe, and similar movements are springing up at about the same time, not just in Germany, but in Switzerland and France and Italy. And so we call this the Reformation. These people are called Protestants because they're kind of like responding in protest to what they've seen for a, long, a lot of years. So there's this sense of hope. It's like there's been centuries and centuries of darkness, and after the darkness, now there is light. That's pretty cool. That's what we're talking about with the Reformation. I think it's also helpful to understand a bit of what's going on within Roman Catholicism at the time, within the papacy. So this is not a good time for the Roman Catholic Church. They're angry, they're in reaction mode, and in England, the Bible only exists in Latin, okay? They only the, you can only read scripture in Latin. And, what, and the version of the Bible that they're using is what's called the Latin Vulgate. I don't expect you to know that. There's not going to be a test later. But what, you, what is helpful to know is that this Latin version, this Latin translation, it's the same version that they've been using since about the 4th century, and it actually had a bunch of mistakes. 
Like it was a flawed translation, but it was the authorized version, and it was the rule of the Roman Catholic Church at the time that you cannot have a Bible in your own language. It must be read in Latin. And so no matter where you go throughout the, throughout the empire, throughout the Roman Catholic Church, you're hearing Mass in Latin. And so the only people who can really read and understand Scripture are priests and bishops. And it's thought, well, Latin is a sacred language, This is how we'll protect people from ideas that they can't really understand. But then the reformers come along with their big idea that priests are wrong, the Pope is wrong, the Pope is is like an antichrist. They're using the language of antichrist for the Pope. We don't need a Pope. God's word itself is enough. And so, again, the Roman Catholic Church is is in reaction mode, and they're putting out fires all over Europe. And in England, they're arresting people for the charge of heresy, And heresy in England, what that means is they're trying to read the Bible in English. It means if you're charged with heresy in English at this time, what it means is you've been caught reading or owning part of the Bible in the English language. So I'm not a hater of Roman Catholicism. Any of you who know me, you you know that that's true. But this is not a good time to be a Roman Catholic. It's It's a hard time for the Catholic Church. One more thing to understand by way of context is about the monarchy. It's about the kind of about the king of England. Here he is, King Henry VIII. He's the king at this time, and there is tension between the king and the pope because King Henry, he's really disappointed with, his, with the woman who happens to be his wife at the time, and he wants to divorce her. And the pope won't allow it. And the king's supporters are like, dude, you're the king. You don't need the pope's permission. If you want to divorce somebody, you go ahead and divorce them. And so he's starting to consider that maybe he should be the head of the church in England. Maybe they don't need a pope. Maybe they should separate, you know, British Christianity from Roman Catholicism. And he's considering making himself sort of the new pope or the new head of the Church of England. So the beginnings of these ideas are starting to stir within King Henry and some of his friends at the time. Maybe they should develop an English church. Maybe they should have, you know, English traditions and English liturgy and all and, and, and so on. And there's lots of debate Lots of arguments back and forth between the Pope and the King. But as you know, nothing can bring two people together like a common enemy. And so enter William Tyndale. Well, William Tyndale was an English speaker. He was born and raised in England. He, in fact, from a young age, he showed that he was brilliant. And he went to school in Oxford and Cambridge. He mastered seven languages. Seven languages. Latin, Greek, German, French, Hebrew, Spanish, and Italian. At about the age of 23, he's ordained as a Roman Catholic priest. So he's a Catholic priest. He is like all in with the Roman Catholic faith. And during his his studies, he has not only learned Catholic theology, but he's been introduced to the writings of some of the reformers. He's hearing about this guy, Martin Luther, and what happened over in Germany. Well, he becomes convinced that the the reformers are on to something. They're probably right. And he finds himself in debates and arguments with other, other priests about the Bible. He's debating with the other priests about the pros and cons of having a Latin Bible versus why they shouldn't maybe have an English Bible. In fact, there's a funny story that survived. It's where William Tyndale was having an argument with another priest. This priest says to William Tyndale, he's like, do you even realize what's in there? What he says, and this is a quote, we had better be without God's laws than the popes. In other words, Dude, ignorance is bliss for the, good, for the people of, of Europe. People are better off not knowing what is in there 
And we should all just obey the Pope rather than try to learn all these laws from Scripture. William Tyndale's response, and this is again a quote, he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life, before many years I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of Scripture than thou dost. Okay, so that's going on. William Tyndale's having these debates. Meanwhile, over in London, the Cardinal has this giant book burning, and there's amnesty. Anybody who wants to bring out a copy of, of uh, Martin Luther's writing, they can add it to the pile, and they'll have a great big bonfire in the middle of town, and nobody will get in trouble. You won't be punished. And King Henry VIII, he's all in on this. He's like, yes, absolutely, we need to only stick with the Latin Bible. We do not want to even entertain the possibility of Reformation here in England. Like, you guys don't even think about it. I've heard all kinds of things about Martin Luther. Don't you, don't you dare try that stuff here in England. And when the Pope hears that King Henry VIII is saying those things, the Pope is like, aw, friend. And so after that, there's this great partnership uh, between the Pope and, and King Henry VIII. It's like they're on the same team. While that's going on, William Tyndale has been translating his, the Bible into English. Now, what's his goal? What's his, his big idea? What he wants to do is make an accurate English translation, as accurate a translation as possible. He doesn't want to give people a copy of a copy. He's not going to go and give people a translation from like the Greek into the Latin into the English. So it's kind of like a third-hand translation. He wants to go right directly to the Greek, translate it into the New Testament. Okay? That's what he wants to give people. And to understand why that was so important to him, I've got a couple of quotes of his. And for William Tyndale, this was all about discipleship. So here's what he said. He said, I perceived how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except that the Scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. He just doesn't know any other way for people to come to know the truth unless it's in their own language. And then, and he also says this, this is the, the suggestion that any English translation would be full of errors or it would be driven by an agenda. And so his response was, I call God to record against the day that we shall appear before our Lord Jesus. In other words, like, as God is my witness, I never altered one syllable of God's word against my conscience, nor would do this day if all that is in earth, whether it be honor, pleasure, or riches, might be given me. William Tyndale saying, you couldn't pay me enough to mistranslate the Bible. You couldn't pay me enough to add my own spin and my own sauce to the, to the Holy Scriptures. It is so important to him to just provide a, an accurate English translation. So that's really important. Because at this point, William Tyndale is seen as a, tr as a troublemaker. And no matter where he goes, he's getting into these arguments with other priests, and he can't get a job as a priest. It would be really great if he could, because that would be like the best cover, right? That would be a great cover so that he can continue translating the Bible. But no parish in England is going to touch him, because he's such a troublemaker. And so, he leaves England. And from then on, for about the next 10 years, he's traveling, and he's hiding out, and he's working on his translation of the English Bible. One of his first stops is actually in Wittenberg, Germany, and he spends a bit of time with Martin Luther. I don't know if you knew that, but I think that's really cool. He got to hang out with Martin Luther and hear a little bit more directly from the horse's mouth. He ends up in the city of Worms in, in Germany, and he, in, in Worms, he finds a printer, just this private guy who just happens to own a, a printing press, and this guy is willing to work with Tyndale and print his English New Testament. And he does. 
And so in 1526, the first English New Testament, translated from Greek into English, it's finished. It's, uh, it's printed in Germany, in Worms in Germany, and it's smuggled into England. And they bring it on, on these like horse-drawn carts, smuggled and hidden inside of bales of hay and different fabrics and stuff. Now at this point, I want to kind of pause and just ask, like, what was so wrong with an English Bible? Like, why did, why did the Pope, why did the Roman Catholics, why did they want to go to such effort to stop William Tyndale from creating an English Bible? I actually don't think it's that hard to understand, because, you know, maybe about 15, 20 years ago, some of you might remember that Zondervan, so they published Bibles and Christian books, they released a Bible that stirred up some controversy because it was gender-inclusive. So they went through the Old and New Testaments, and they found references to men or, or, or man, and, and what they tried to do was change those male pronouns to more gender-inclusive pronouns. So instead of mankind, it was humankind, etc. You get, you get it? Actually, there's a lot of negative reaction to that. A lot of people thought, like, this is a terrible idea. Like, who do they think they are to change the words of Scripture? How dare they? Who do, we've, we've used this Bible a long time. What makes Zondervan think that their version is, is any better than this authorized version that we've got? They're like, are we going to let Zondervan poison people's mind with this, like, liberal agenda and this bad translation? This is such a clearly agenda-driven translation. We cannot possibly allow that. So this was the reaction to Zondervan, right? There's this suspicion and there's this reaction against Zondervan as though they had a, an agenda and their work couldn't be trusted. Well, in the same way, if we had been there in William Tyndale's day and we heard somebody saying about the Pope and about the Catholic Church, the sorts of things that William Tyndale and others said about the Pope and about the Catholic Church, and if we knew that he was bent on creating his own English translation, I think that we'd be suspicious too. Well, they did a pretty good job, actually. The King of England, Henry VIII, he he issued an arrest warrant that was in effect for all of Europe, Anybody who found William Tyndale was to turn him in immediately. At home in England, you were not allowed to have an English Bible. You're not allowed to read an English Bible. And if you were, you could be charged with heresy. And in the meantime, they're like buying up every copy that they could find. All of these smuggled copies of the Bible, they're buying them all up in order to burn them. And there's some irony there because that actually helped to fund William Tyndale as he continued his work and it made the printers rich. So how did they finally catch him? You know, we could, we could spend easily another hour just talking about William Tyndale's supporters and his friends and his faith community and how it helped him and how, they, how much they risked by associating with him and donating their money and donating their homes so that he could continue working. But we won't do that. I'll just say that by early 1535, William Tyndale was in Antwerp in Belgium. He'd finished translating the first five books of the, the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, etc. We call that the Pentateuch. He'd finished translating that. They had been smuggled into England along with copies of his revised New Testament. And that's when he meets a fellow from Belgium named Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips says all the right things. He's able to quote Martin Luther. He's a very impressive guy. What's interesting is, you know, William Tyndale, despite being one of the most wanted men in all of Europe at the time, despite being a brilliant scholar, he doesn't really have much by way of street smarts. So this guy, Henry Phillips, 
It turns out he had been hired by one of the bishops in London, and Henry Phillips was working undercover the whole time in order to find and betray William Tyndale. And on May 21st, 1535, William Tyndale believes, he believes that he's going out to lunch with Henry Phillips. They're just friends going out for a nice lunch together. What he doesn't realize is that officers are going to be there waiting at the tavern for them. And they arrive there, see these officers, and William Tyndale is arrested. He's taken into custody, and he's brought to a tower, a dungeon in a tower, dark and dank and just a disgusting dungeon in a tower. And he spends the next 18 months in that dungeon. And those next 18 months are actually his, his last. Well, William Tyndale has a trial in uh, August of 1536, and you can read the list of charges that were brought against him. Besides being charged with having translated the Bible into English, which was forbidden, the, the, the list includes this. First, he had maintained that faith alone justifies. Like he, That's part of what he was arrested for, you understand? He maintained that faith alone justifies. He maintained that to believe in the forgiveness of sins and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. He denied the freedom of the will. He denied that there is any purgatory. He affirmed that neither the virgin, like Mary, he affirmed that neither Mary nor the saints pray for us in their own person. That's a big part of Roman Catholic doctrine in the time. He asserted that neither the Virgin Mary nor the saints should be invoked by us. We shouldn't be praying to the saints. These are the things that William Tyndale is charged with. And of course, his trial is just a formality. He's easily and quickly convicted, and he's sentenced to burn. Now, before he is executed, they actually have a public ceremony uh, where they sort of like ceremoniously like cast him out. They symbolically cast him out and excommunicate him as a priest. And what that ceremony included is they bring him out in his priest robes. They bring him out of the dungeon, and he's dressed in his priestly robes, and they publicly strip him of those robes to show that he's no longer a priest. And they take his bare hands, and they scrape them with blades and broken bits of glass. And by doing that, it symbolizes how he has lost the anointing of the Spirit. He's no longer qualified to minister and serve God's people. They bring out the chalice of, of wine and the bowl for the, of, of the bread, and they place them in William Tyndale's hands, and then they, they pull them away really quickly in order to symbolize that he's no longer qualified to, to be a minister of communion. He's no longer qualified to serve the Eucharist. Well, again, in October, they brought him out from his dungeon and... This was October 6th, 1536. He's brought to the center of town, and he is tied to a post. They strangle him with a chain, and then they set the whole thing on fire. Before he died, he could be heard saying, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. The last words recorded we have from William Tyndale, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That prayer actually would be answered because by now, King Henry VIII, he's the head of the Church of England, which has now split off from Roman Catholicism. But King Henry VIII, he's going to go ahead and he's going to authorize his own English Bible. After all of this, Henry VIII is going to say, let's go ahead and let's give the people a Bible in English. Except, guess what? It's going to borrow almost all of William Tyndale's translation work. They're basically just going to steal it rebrand it and call it the the King Henry VIII version. It's called the Great Bible. Well, last thing uh, about William Tyndale. 
Uh, when he died, there, there had been about 18,000 copies of his New Testament that had been printed and spread out across England and the rest of Europe. Uh, we know of about two copies that exist today. One of them is here on the screen. That's what it looked like. In 1611, a bunch of years later, they released the King James Version. So many of you would be familiar with the King James Version. When the King James Version was published, most of it, about 84% of it, again, just borrowed William Tyndale's work. And so for that reason, it's interesting that you and I, we probably quote William Tyndale all the time without realizing it. There's a bunch of phrases that William Tyndale originated as his translation of the Greek and Hebrew that have just kind of made their way into the Bible translations and into our day-to-day parlance, phrases like the powers that be. That's, that's Tyndale. Let there be light. Uh, the spirit is willing. The apple of his eye. The straight and narrow. My brother's keeper. Eat, drink, and be merry. A stranger in a strange land. How many of us have, are familiar with these phrases? Maybe you've used some of these. I see some nodding heads. I see some hands. We've used some of these. What's interesting here is not only have these made their way into our common usage, but English translations of the Bible today still include these. They go directly back to William Tyndale. And so his effect, his legacy is still very, very strong about 500 years later. So let me, let me wrap up this study of William Tyndale just by sharing a couple of lessons. That's what we've been doing each week. So just a couple this morning. The first is a lesson about worship. It's about worship. For centuries in this time, Christians see worship as something to get through. It's just, a, it's a chore. It's not a choice. Worship is a chore. Now, let me just say, just, be, just to be really clear, I get that there are some people for whom there's something beautiful and transcendent about a Latin, you know, liturgy. Something really cool about worshiping in Latin and, you know, the sights and the sounds. And that's something for you that's really transcendent and cool. And I totally get that kind of temperament. Okay? There aren't that many folks like that these days, but there are some. Now, in William Tyndale's day, there are almost none. In William Tyndale's day, the overwhelming majority of worshipers, they sit down in this giant Catholic church, and the person at the front of the room, the priest or the bishop or the cardinal, who's saying the Mass in Latin, they might as well be speaking like Elvish or something like that, because people have absolutely no idea what this person is saying. They can't possibly relate to God through what's going on, because they just don't understand it. But it's like, hey, it's, it's 45 minutes out of our life we can do it. We, we, at least if we go to Mass, we go home and we're forgiven. We've been wiped clean of our sins. It's a clean slate and we can go about our business. And, and one of the lessons of the life of William Tyndale, it seems to me, is about authentic worship. Authentic worship is a choice. For it to be authentic worship, we have to mean it. Real authentic worship forces us to ask, like, why do we do this? Why do we actually, why do we gather here? What do we hope is going to happen when we gather here in a space like this and we do these things? What do we hope is going to happen? And if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen, if we find ourselves not being able to worship authentically, what should change? Why do we ask somebody to lead us in these songs every Sunday? Why do we ask somebody to prepare a message teaching about God's Word? Why do we, why do, we do that? Why do we do communion Why do we make time for all of these things? What's the point? Because worship isn't something to get through. 
If it's a chore, it's actually not worship. I think that in our context, sometimes it happens that when we come through a Sunday morning, we're like, I haven't worshiped. And it may be that the problem or the issue is something that's happening up here that shouldn't be happening. Something that happens up at the front of the room. It's maybe the, the, the person teaching. Maybe I say something that I shouldn't have said. And so maybe the issue is something that's happening out, up here. Maybe the issue can be something that's happening out there. I'm not talking about distractions. I'm talking about something that may or may not be going on in our hearts. In our hearts. For that reason, you sometimes will hear me say that our ability to worship God on Sunday morning depends on what happens on Saturday night. Let me say that again. I actually really believe that a lot of our experience of worship on Sunday morning depends on what we were doing Saturday night. And so the lesson here is that worship is a choice. Worship is a choice. Uh, last lesson, I think, has to do with the worth of God's word, the value of God's word. When we hear the story of William Tyndale, we want to ask, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it really worth this person's life? You know, if you're from a churchy background, you're probably inclined to say, yes, absolutely, it was worth it. But I don't want you to be so quick to say, yes, it was worth it. I want you to imagine that this was happening today. Imagine it's happening today. It's not like William Tyndale was going to be the only person who ever learned Greek and Hebrew, okay? Surely, eventually, somebody else would come along and would be able to translate it. Like, wasn't that inevitable? Why did it have to be William Tyndale? Why did he have to give his life? Maybe he should have just waited. Maybe he should have listened to the king. Maybe he should have listened to the pope. Maybe he should have obeyed the people in charge, stayed out of trouble, I can actually imagine all kinds of people saying something like that. That's not, that's not crazy. Well, suppose William Tyndale is your friend. Suppose he's your, your cousin, or he's your neighbor, or he's your brother. Suppose he's your son. Would you support him in his work? Would you say, you're, you're, you're doing the right thing, and I love you, and I support you? Or would you say, dude, you're going to get yourself killed. Would you try to change his mind? The answer to that, the answer to whether or not it was worth it, depends on whether we are better off with the scriptures in our language than we are without them. What do you think? I'll end with this word from William Tyndale, and I'll share our take-it-home questions. He said, Let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, or that it is made breaking of the king's peace or treason unto his highness to read the word of thy soul's health. Do you hear that? Don't let it trouble you that it's illegal. Don't let it trouble you that we've been forbidden from reading scripture and having it in our own language. For, he says, for if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, or popes? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.